Chapter 18 of Legends of Charlemagne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Gantz. Legends of Charlemagne by Thomas Bullfinch. Chapter 18 The Battle of Roncesvalles. After the expulsion of the Saracens from France, Charlemagne led his army into Spain to punish Marsilius, the king of that country, for having sided with the African Saracens in the late war. Charlemagne succeeded in all his attempts, and compelled Marsilius to submit and pay tribute to France. Our readers will remember Gano, otherwise called Gan or Ganelon, whom we mentioned in one of our early chapters as an old courtier of Charlemagne, and a deadly enemy of Orlando, Rinaldo, and all their friends. He had great influence over Charles, from equality of age and long intimacy, and he was not without good qualities. He was brave and sagacious, but envious, false, and treacherous. Gan prevailed on Charles to send him as ambassador to Marsilius, to arrange the tribute. He embraced Orlando over and over again at taking leave, using such pains to seem loving and sincere that his hypocrisy was manifest to everyone but the old monarch. He fastened with equal tenderness on Oliver, who smiled contemptuously in his face and thought to himself, You may make as many fair speeches as you choose, but you lie. All the other paladins who were present thought the same, and they said as much to the emperor, adding that Gan should on no account be sent ambassador to the Spaniards. But Charles was infatuated. Gan was received with great honor by Marsilius. The king, attended by his lords, came fifteen miles out of Saragossa to meet him, and then conducted him into the city with acclamations. There was nothing for several days but balls, games, and exhibitions of chivalry, the ladies throwing flowers on the heads of the French knights, and the people shouting, France! Montjoy and Saint-Denis! After the ceremonies of the first reception, the king and the ambassador began to understand one another. One day they sat together in a garden on the border of a fountain. The water was so clear and smooth it reflected every object around, and the spot was encircled with fruit trees which quivered with the fresh air. As they sat and talked as if without restraint, Gan, without looking the king in the face, was enabled to see the expression on his countenance in the water, and governed his speech accordingly. Marsilius was equally adroit, and watched the face of Gan while he addressed him. Marsilius began by lamenting, not as to the ambassador, but as to the friend, the injuries which Charles had done him by invading his dominions, charging him with wishing to take his kingdom from him and give it to Orlando, till at length he plainly uttered his belief that if that ambitious paladin were but dead, good men would get their rights. Gan heaved a sigh, as if he was unwillingly compelled to allow the force of what the king said but unable to contain himself long he lifted up his face radiant with triumphant wickedness and exclaimed every word you utter is truth die he must and die also must oliver who struck me that foul blow at court is it treachery to punish affronts like these i have planned everything i have settled everything already with their besotted master orlando will come to your borders to roncesvalles for the purpose of receiving the tribute Charles will await him at the foot of the mountains. Orlando will bring but a small band with him. You, when you meet him, will have secretly your whole army at your back. You surround him, and who receives tribute then? 
The new Judas had scarcely uttered these words when his exultation was interrupted by a change in the face of nature. The sky was suddenly overcast. There was thunder and lightning. A laurel was split in two from head to foot, and the carob tree under which Gan was sitting, which is said to be the species of tree on which Judas Iscariot hung himself, dropped one of its pods on his head. Marsilius, as well as Gan, was appalled at this omen, but on assembling his soothsayers they came to the conclusion that the laurel tree turned the omen against the emperor, the successor of the Caesars, though one of them renewed the consternation of Gan by saying that he did not understand the meaning of the tree of Judas, and intimating that perhaps the ambassador could explain it. Gan relieved his vexation by anger. The habit of wickedness prevailed over all other considerations, and the king prepared to march to Roncesvalles at the head of all his forces. Gan wrote to Charlemagne to say how humbly and submissively Marsilius was coming to pay the tribute into the hands of Orlando, and how handsome it would be of the emperor to meet him halfway, and so be ready to receive him after the payment at his camp. He added a brilliant account of the tribute and the accompanying presents. The good emperor wrote in turn to say how pleased he was with the ambassador's diligence, and that matters were arranged precisely as he wished. His court, however, had its suspicions still, though they little thought Gan's object in bringing Charles into the neighborhood of Roncesvalles was to deliver him into the hands of Marsilius, after Orlando should have been destroyed by him. Orlando, however, did as his lord and sovereign desired. He went to Roncesvalles, accompanied by a moderate train of warriors, not dreaming of the atrocity that awaited him. Gan, meanwhile, had hastened back to France, in order to show himself free and easy in the presence of Charles, and secure the success of his plot, while Marsilius, to make assurance doubly sure, brought into the passes of Roncesvalles no less than three armies, which were successively to fall on the paladin in case of the worst, and so extinguish him with numbers. He had also, by Gan's advice, brought heaps of wine and good cheer to be set before his victims in the first instance. For that, said the traitor, will render the onset the more effective, the feasters being unarmed. One thing, however, I must not forget, added he. My son Baldwin is sure to be with Orlando. You must take care of his life for my sake. I give him this vesture off my own body, said the king. Let him wear it in the battle and have no fear. My soldiers shall be directed not to touch him. Gan went away rejoicing to France. He embraced the sovereign and the court all round with the air of a man who had brought them nothing but blessings, and the old king wept for very tenderness and delight. Something is going on wrong and looks very black, thought Malagigi, the good wizard. Rinaldo is not here, and it is indispensably necessary that he should be. I must find out where he is, and Ricciardetto, too and send them with all speed. Mulagigi called up by his art a wise, terrible, and cruel spirit, named Ashtaroth. Tell me, and tell me truly, of Rinaldo, said Mulagigi to the spirit. The demon looked hard at the paladin and said nothing. His aspect was clouded and violent. The enchanter, with an aspect still cloudier, bade Ashtaroth lay down that look, and made signs as if he would resort to angrier compulsion and the devil, alarmed, loosened his tongue, and said, You have not told me what you desire to know of Rinaldo. I desire to know what he has been doing and where he is. He has been conquering and baptizing the world east and west, said the demon, 
and is now in Egypt with Ricci Ardetto. And what has Gan been plotting with Marsilius, inquired Malagigi, and what is to come of it? I know not, said the devil. I was not attending to Gan at the time, and we fallen spirits know not the future. All I discern is that by the signs and comets in the heavens something dreadful is about to happen, something very strange, treacherous, and bloody, and that Gan has a seat ready prepared for him in hell. Within three days, cried the enchanter loudly, bring Rinaldo and Ricciardetto into the pass of Roncesvalles. Do it, and I hereby undertake to summon thee no more. Suppose they will not trust themselves with me, said the spirit. Enter Rinaldo's horse, and bring him, whether he trust thee or not. It shall be done, returned the demon. There was an earthquake, and Ashtaroth disappeared. Marsilius now made his first movement towards the destruction of Orlando, by sending before him his vassal, King Blanchardin, with his presents of wines and other luxuries. The temperate but courteous hero took them in good part, and distributed them as the traitor wished, and then Blanchardin, on pretense of going forward to salute Charlemagne, returned and put himself at the head of the second army, which was the post assigned to him by his liege lord. King Falserson, whose son Orlando had slain in battle, headed the first army, and King Balugante Third. Marsilius made a speech to them, in which he let them into his design, and concluded by recommending to their good will the son of his friend Gan, whom they would know by the vest he had sent him, and who was the only soul amongst the Christian they were to spare. This son of Gan, meanwhile, and several of the paladins who distrusted the misbelievers and were anxious at all events to be with Orlando, had joined the hero in the fatal valley, so that the little Christian host, considering the tremendous valor of their lord and his friends, were not to be sold for nothing. Rinaldo, alas, the second thunderbolt of Christendom, was destined not to be there in time to meet the issue. The paladins in vain begged Orlando to be on his guard against treachery, and send for a more numerous body of men. The great heart of the champion of the faith was unwilling to harbor suspicion as long as he could help it. He refused to summon aid which might be superfluous. Neither would he do anything but what his liege lord had directed. And yet he could not wholly repress a misgiving. A shadow had fallen on his heart, great and cheerful as it was. The anticipations of his friends disturbed him, in spite of the face with which he met them. Perhaps by a certain foresight he felt his death approaching, but he felt bound not to encourage the impression. Besides, time pressed, the moment of the looked-for tribute was at hand, and little combinations of circumstance determine often the greatest events. King Marsilius was to arrive early the next day with the tribute, and Oliver, with the morning sun, rode forth to reconnoiter, and see if he could discover the peaceful pomp of the Spanish court in the distance. He rode up the nearest height, and from the top of it beheld the first army of Marsilius already forming in the passes. "'Oh, devil Gan!' he exclaimed. "'This, then, is the consummation of thy labors.' Oliver put spurs to his horse, and galloped back down the mountain to Orlando. "'Well,' cried the hero, what news? Bad news, said his cousin, such as you would not hear of yesterday. Marsilius is here in arms, and all the world is with him. The paladins pressed round Orlando and entreated him to sound his horn in token that he needed help. His only answer was to mount his horse, 
and ride up the mountain with Sansonetto. As soon, however, as he cast forth his eyes, and beheld what was round about him, he turned in sorrow, and looked down into Roncesvalles, and said, O oh, miserable valley, the blood shed in thee this day will color thy name forever. Orlando's little camp were furious against the Saracens. They armed themselves with the greatest impatience. There was nothing but lacing of helmets and mounting of horses, while good Archbishop Turpin went from rank to rank exhorting and encouraging the warriors of Christ. Orlando and his captains withdrew for a moment to consultation. He fairly groaned for sorrow, and at first had not a word to say, so wretched he felt at having brought his people to die in Roncesvalles. Then he said, if it had entered into my heart to conceive the king of Spain to be such a villain, never would you have seen this day. He has exchanged with me a thousand courtesies and good words, and I thought that the worse enemies we had been before, the better friends we had become now. I fancied every human being capable of this kind of virtue on a good opportunity, saving, indeed, such base-hearted wretches as can never forgive their very forgivers, and of these I did not suppose him to be one. Let us die, if die we must, like honest and gallant men, so that it shall be said of us it was only our bodies that died. The reason why I did not sound the horn was partly because I thought it did not become us, and partly because our liege lord could hardly save us even if he had heard it. And with these words Orlando sprang to his horse, crying, Aways against the Saracens! But he had no sooner turned his face than he wept bitterly, and said, O oh, holy virgin, think not of me, the sinner Orlando, but have pity on these thy servants. And now, with a mighty dust, and an infinite sound of horns and tambours which came filling the valley, the first army of the infidels made its appearance, horses neighing and a thousand pennons flying in the air. King Falseron led them on, saying to his officers, Let nobody dare to lay a finger on Orlando, he belongs to myself. The revenge of my son's death is mine. I will cut the man down that comes between us. Now, friends, said Orlando, every man for himself and St. Michael for us all. There is not one here that is not a perfect knight. And he might well say it, for the flower of all France was there except Rinaldo and Ricciardetto, every man a picked man, all friends and constant companions of Orlando. So the captains of the little troop and of the great army sat looking at one another, and signalling one another out as the latter came on, and then the knights put spear in rest, and ran for a while two and two in succession, one against the other. Astolfo was the first to move. He ran against Arlotto of Sorio, and thrust his antagonist's body out of the saddle, and his soul into the other world. Oliver encountered Malprimo and, though he received a thrust which hurt him, sent his lance right through the heart of Malprimo. Falseron was daunted at this blow. Truly, thought he, this is a marvel. Oliver did not press on among the Saracens. His wound was too painful. But Orlando now put himself and his whole band in motion, and you may guess what an uproar ensued. The sound of the rattling of blows and helmets was as if the forge of Vulcan had been thrown open. Falseron beheld Orlando coming so furiously that he thought him a Lucifer who had burst his chain, and was quite of another mind than when he purposed to have him all to himself. 
On the contrary, he recommended himself to his gods, and turned away, meaning to wait for a more auspicious season of revenge. But Orlando hailed him with a terrible voice, saying, O oh, thou traitor, was this the end to which old quarrels were made up? Then he dashed at Falseron with a fury so swift, and at the same time with a mastery of his lance so marvellous, that, though he plunged it in the man's body so as instantly to kill him and then withdrew it, the body did not move in the saddle. The hero himself, as he rushed onwards, was fain to see the end of a stroke so perfect, and turning his horse back, touched the carcass with his sword, and it fell on the instant. When the infidels beheld their leader dead, such fear fell upon them that they were for leaving the field to the paladins, but they were unable. Marsilius had drawn the rest of his forces round the valley like a net, so that their shoulders were turned in vain. Orlando rode into the thick of them, and wherever he went thunderbolts fell upon helmets. Oliver was again in the fray, with Walter and Baldwin, Avino and Avolio, while Archbishop Turpin had changed his crozier for a lance, and chased a new flock before him to the mountains. Yet what could be done against foes without number? Marsilius constantly pours them in. The paladins are as units to thousands. Why tarry the horses of Rinaldo and Ricciardetto? The horses did not tarry, but fate had been quicker than enchantment. Ashtaroth had presented himself to Rinaldo in Egypt, and, after telling his errand, he and Foulmouth, his servant, entered the horses of Rinaldo and Ricciardetto, which began to neigh and snort and leap with the fiends within them, till off they flew through the air over the pyramids and across the desert, and reached Spain and the scene of the action just as Marsilius brought up his third army. The two paladins on their horses dropped right into the midst of the Saracens, and began making such havoc among them that Marsilius, who overlooked the fight from a mountain, thought his soldiers had turned against one another. Orlando beheld it, and guessed it could be no other but his cousins, and pressed to meet them. Oliver coming up at the same moment, the rapture of the whole party is not to be expressed. After a few hasty words of explanation, they were forced to turn again upon the enemy whose numbers seemed perfectly without limit. Orlando, making a bloody passage towards Mercilius, struck a youth on the head, whose helmet was so strong as to resist the blow, but at the same time flew off. Orlando prepared to strike a second blow when the youth exclaimed, Hold! You loved my father, I am Buiaforte. The paladin had never seen Buiaforte, but he saw the likeness to the good old man, his father, and dropped his sword. Oh, Buiaforte, he said, I loved him indeed. But what does his son do here fighting against his friends? Buiaforte could not at once speak for weeping. At length he said, I am forced to be here by my lord and master Marsilius, and I have made a show of fighting, but I have not hurt a single Christian. Treachery is on every side of you. Baldwin himself has a vest given him by Marsilius, that everybody may know the son of his friend Gan and do him no harm. Put your helmet on again, said Orlando, and behave just as you have done. Never will your father's friend be an enemy to the son. The hero then turned in fury to look for Baldwin, who was hastening toward him at that moment with friendliness in his looks. Tis strange, said Baldwin. I have done my duty as well as I could, yet nobody will come against me. 
I have slain right and left, and cannot comprehend what it is that makes the stoutest infidels avoid me. Take off your vest, said Orlando contemptuously, and you will soon discover the secret if you wish to know it. Your father has sold us to Marsilius, all but his honorable son. If my father, said Baldwin, impetuously tearing off the vest, has been such a villain, and I escape dying, I will plunge this sword through his heart. But I am no traitor, Orlando, and you do me wrong to say it. Think not I can live with dishonor. Baldwin spurred off into the fight, not waiting to hear another word from Orlando, who was very sorry for what he had said, for he perceived that the youth was in despair. And now the fight raged beyond all it had done before. Twenty pagans went down for one paladin, but still the paladins fell. Sansonetto was beaten to earth by the club of Grandonio. Walter de Mullion had his shoulder broken. Berlingeri and Atone were slain, and at last Astolfo fell, in revenge of whose death Orlando turned the spot where he died into a lake of Saracen blood. The luckless Buiaforte met Rinaldo, and before he could explain how he seemed to be fighting on the Saracen side, received such a blow upon the head that he fell, unable to utter a word. Orlando, cutting his way to a spot where there was a great struggle and uproar, found the poor youth Baldwin, the son of Gan, with two spears in his breast. "'I am no traitor now,' said Baldwin, and those were the last words he said." Orlando was bitterly sorry to have been the cause of his death, and tears streamed from his eyes. At length down went Oliver himself. He had become blinded with his own blood, and smitten Orlando without knowing him. "'How now, cousin?' cried Orlando. "'Have you too gone over to the enemy?' "'Oh, my lord and master,' cried the other, "'I ask your pardon. I can see nothing. I am dying. Some traitor has stabbed me in the back.' If you love me, lead my horse into the thick of them, so that I may not die unavenged. I shall die myself before long, said Orlando, out of very toil and grief. So we will go together. Orlando led his cousin's horse where the press was thickest, and dreadful was the strength of the dying man and his tired companion. They made a street through which they passed out of the battle, and Orlando led his cousin away to his tent and said, Wait a little till I return, for I will go and sound the horn on the hill yonder. "'Tis of no use,' said Oliver. "'My spirit is fast going and desires to be with its lord and savior." He would have said more, but his words came from him imperfectly, like those of a man in a dream. And so he expired. When Orlando saw him dead, he felt as if he was alone on the earth, and he was quite willing to leave it. Only he wished that King Charles, at the foot of the mountains, should know how the case stood before he went. So he took up the horn and blew it three times, with such force that the blood burst out of his nose and mouth. Turpin says that at the third blast the horn broke in two. In spite of all the noise of the battle, the sound of the horn broke over it like a voice out of the other world. They say that birds fell dead at it, and the whole Saracen army drew back in terror. Charlemagne was sitting in the midst of his court when the sound reached him, and Gan was there. The emperor was the first to hear it. "'Do you hear that?' he said to his nobles. "'Did you hear the horn as I heard it?' Upon this they all listened, and Gan felt his heart misgive him. The horn sounded a second time. "'What is the meaning of this?' said Charles. "'Orlando is hunting,' observed Gan, "'and the stag is killed.' 
but when the horn sounded yet a third time and the blast was one of so dreadful a vehemence everybody looked at the other and then they all looked at gan in a fury charles rose from his seat this is no hunting of the stag said he the sound goes to my very heart oh gan oh gan not for thee do i blush but for myself oh foul and monstrous villain take him gentlemen and keep him in close prison would to god i had not lived to see this day but it was no time for words they put the traitor in prison and then charles with all his court took his way to roncesvalles grieving and praying it was afternoon when the horn sounded and half an hour after it when the emperor set out and meantime orlando had returned to the fight that he might do his duty however hopeless as long as he could sit his horse at length he found his end approaching for toil and fever and rode all alone to a fountain where he had before quenched his thirst his horse was wearier than he and no sooner had his master alighted than the beast kneeling down as if to take leave and to say i have brought you to a place of rest fell dead at his feet orlando cast water on him from the fountain not wishing to believe him dead but when he found it to no purpose he grieved for him as if he had been a human being and addressed him by name with tears and asked forgiveness if he had ever done him wrong they say that the horse at these words opened his eyes a little and looked kindly at his master and then stirred nevermore they say also that orlando then summoning all his strength smote a rock near him with his beautiful sword durandana thinking to shiver the steel into pieces and so prevent its falling into the hands of the enemy but though the rock split like a slate and a great cleft remained ever after to astonish the eyes of pilgrims the sword remained uninjured and now rinaldo and ricciardetto came up with turpin having driven back the saracens and told orlando that the battle was won then orlando knelt before turpin and begged remission of his sins and turpin gave him absolution orlando fixed his eyes on the hilt of his sword as on a crucifix and embraced it and he raised his eyes and appeared like a creature seraphical and transfigured and bowing his head he breathed out his pure soul and now king charles and his nobles came up the emperor at the sight of the dead orlando threw himself as if he had been a reckless youth from his horse and embraced and kissed the body and said i bless thee orlando i bless thy whole life and all that thou wast and all that thou ever didst and the father that begat thee and i ask pardon of thee for believing those who brought thee to thine end they shall have their reward o beloved one but indeed it is thou that livest and i who am worse than dead horrible to the emperor's eyes was the sight of the field of roncesvalles the saracens indeed had fled conquered but all his paladins but two were left on it dead and the whole valley looked like a great slaughter-house trampled into blood and dirt and reeking to the heat charles trembled to his heart's core for wonder and agony after gazing dumbly on the place he cursed it with a solemn curse and wished that never grass might grow in it again nor seed of any kind neither within it nor on any of its mountains around but the anger of heaven abide over it for ever 
Charles and his warriors went after the Saracens into Spain. They took and fired Saragossa, and Marsilius was hung to the carob tree under which he had planned his villainy with Gan, and Gan was hung and drawn and quartered in Roncesvalles amidst the excorations of the country. End of chapter 18